worship. You are worthy of glory and honor and praise. And not only do you deserve it by your very nature, but you have done what we could not. You have ransomed sinners. You have called us to yourself. You have delivered. You have forgiven. You have redeemed. So God, you are worthy of worship doubly because of who you are and because of what you've done. So God, I pray that as we gather, as we corporately praise you, lifting up one voice, hearing your word and responding, that we would honor you, that our worship would be pleasing to you, that you would be glorified in what we say, what we do, what we think, not just here, but every day, every moment. It's in the power of Christ and his powerful name that I pray. Amen. I need to ask you a question. What does authentic worship look like? Now just think about it in your mind. What does authentic worship look like? Does it mean eyes closed, hands raised? Right? Does it require electric guitar or not? Does it require uh, an organ? We kind of had, we didn't have electric guitar, but we had a couple of guitars and an organ today, so we're doing great, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, what does the style have to be like? What are the necessary particulars that we have to have in order for this to be authentic Christian worship? Now let me ask another series of questions that maybe get a little bit more to the heart of it, that are a little bit more appropriate. What do you think Jesus would think about our worship? If he went from church to church, do you think that he would be impressed with our buildings? Do you think that he would be honored in the size of our congregations? Right? Do you think that he'd be pleased with our programs and activities and all this stuff that we do? Do you think that he would be moved by our showmanship? Right? Flawless oration, excellent music, dramatic lights and visual displays. Do you think that honors the Lord? Do you think that Jesus finds any of that necessary? Would he be honored by how we raise our hands or clap or cry? or any outward demonstration of our spiritual experience. You know, if we ask ourselves more questions like this, it might change the way that we think about worship. And it should. Because whether we like it or not, you and I, we're not the judges of worship. We don't determine what's right and what's wrong. We don't determine what's fruitful and what's not. Right? It's not about our wants. It's not about our desires. It's not about our personal preferences. It's not measured by the excellence in our presentation or by the security and affluence that comes with a building or a large congregation of people that show up on Sunday or how it makes us feel. No, God is the one who determines whether or not worship is pleasing to God. Does that make sense? Right? God determines whether or not worship is pleasing to Him, right? He alone is the judge of worship. 
Now this morning we're going to look at Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 21. We're continuing in our study of Mark, and it's page 847 in the Bibles there in the chairs. And what we're going to see from this text is that Jesus actually goes into the centerpiece of worship of God's people at that time. The biggest location, right? The most extravagant worship facility at the biggest day of the year, the biggest week of the year, leading up to Passover. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people have gathered there, all singing, all worshiping, all praying, all sacrificing, all gathered together to worship the Lord at the biggest worship facility available at the time. This is the biggest worship experience that you could have in that day and age, and Jesus is going to curse it. All of those particulars that man can look to in order to determine the value of worship are set aside. Jesus is the true judge of worship. So let's look at Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 21. It says, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now last week prepared us for what happens in this passage. It was the previous day, the day earlier, Jesus made his way into Jerusalem. And there was all this fanfare and all this excitement. The people rejoiced. They laid their cloaks down on, on the ground. They laid palm branches down and celebrated as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on this colt of a donkey. Right? And you remember that they're shouting. They're celebrating. They're singing songs. They're singing Psalm 118. Hosanna! God save us! Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Right? All this jubilation, all this excitement, all this fanfare, all this praise as they make their way into Jerusalem. But then, as Jesus enters into the temple, all of that fades away. It all just kind of goes flat. As Jesus goes into the place where the worship actually should have climaxed, where it should have actually served to fulfill the Old Testament passage of, of Psalm 118, the people were, were nowhere to be found. And so Jesus looks around, and he waits for a response. He waits to see if anyone's going to act in faith, and nothing happens. And Jesus looks around, and he begins to observe, because he's getting ready to make a judgment. He's getting ready to declare his verdict on the worship of the temple. And he leaves that day, 
he and his disciples, they go to Bethany. And we saw that, that though these people were performing their religious duties, all, although they were having all these emotional experiences, and even though there was much theological truth in the things that they were proclaiming, their worship was false. Now, on the following day, Jesus is making his way back to the temple in order to render his verdict. Though thousands and thousands and thousands of people have made their way to Jerusalem to celebrate all that God has done for His people. Though as many animals were bought and sacrificed as there were people there at the festivities. I I read one commentator, he said as many as 250,000 lambs were slaughtered at Passover. Keep Keep that in mind, right? And though as many prayers and songs were offered to the God of Israel, Jesus is still going to condemn their worship. Though it appears to be rich, it appears to be a rewarding experience, in reality it's fruitless. Its futility is illustrated in the fruitless fig tree. Verses 12 through 14 tells us that Jesus and his disciples were making their way from Bethany to Jerusalem the following day. And Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now what amazes me as I study this passage is how many people have taken issue with this passage, with these verses in the past century. Now you go back over the course of church history and you've got like 2,000 years where nobody had a problem, but some, for some reason in the last century people have a problem. Maybe you blame the Enlightenment, maybe blame the Industrial Revolution, blame critical scholarship, blame Freud, blame Schleiermacher, blame Charles Darwin, I don't know. But in the last hundred years, for one reason or another, people don't like this passage. Maybe they don't like the fact that Jesus got hungry. I don't, I don't know, you know, it's like... He's the Son of God. He shouldn't get hungry. Why is he getting hungry, right? Well, Jesus is also fully man, right? He's fully God, but he's fully man. And that means that he gets tired. That means that he gets hungry. That means that he has temptations, just like you and me. And so Jesus sees this fig, and though it's not the season for figs, he makes his way to it. But when he found nothing, he cursed it. He said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And we learn from from verses 20 and 21 as a result of his curse, the tree actually withers. Right? It happens. A tree is cursed. Now, before you get mad at Jesus for cursing this poor, helpless, defenseless little tree, and you go out and you find a fig tree to hug and start crying, you know, like, I'm so sorry, Jesus, we're so mean. You know, just, just hear me out for a second, okay? Right? Because Jesus was not unrighteously angry, right? Jesus wasn't just having a bad day. Jesus wasn't pouty and crabby because his blood sugar was low, right? Okay, he wasn't acting in response that way. The text clearly says that he went to see if he could find anything on it, okay? So Jesus walked to the tree knowing that it wasn't the season for figs and also knowing that there's a potential that he could get there there wouldn't be anything on it, okay? Jesus is realistic about it. But he does it for another reason. You see, this is an object lesson. This is what scholars call an enacted parable. Jesus is living out a parable. He's trying to teach them. And rather than telling them a story about a fig tree, he's actually going to go to a fig tree and do it. Okay? 
Jesus sees the fig tree and it's bearing leaves and he uses this as an example of him cursing something that appears to be bearing fruit but is actually useless. Now, I'm not a horticulturist and if I'm honest, the only fig that I've ever eaten has come in the shape of a Newton, right? <laughs> but, but as I understand it, when a fig tree is healthy, it begins to bear leaves uh, and also bears these little things called knops and those will grow into ripened Figs, right? So when the leaves begin to bloom, there are these little green knops. And and those things are not not fully ripe, not fully developed, but they are edible. And and travelers would would make their way, they'd pass by a fig tree, and they could pull these little green knops off and eat them if they wanted to, right? So if it has leaves, it should have knops, right? That's kind of how it works. And Jesus saw that this tree had leaves appearing to be fruitful, but when he actually got to it, there was nothing to eat. The tree was... Uh, appeared to be fruitful, but it was actually useless. And now we're really kind of getting at the heart of why Jesus cursed the tree, right? Because it appears to be fruitful, but in actuality, it is useless, okay? He wasn't moody, right? It wasn't because the tree didn't satisfy his hunger pains. Jesus cursed the tree because it appeared to be healthy, but it was fruitless. But the fig tree actually illustrates something more. This is where your knowledge of the Old Testament is helpful. So if you want to learn more about the Old Testament, please come to the survey of the Old Testament class, which happens at my house, 1508 Smith Road, and on Sunday afternoons, right down in my basement, you can learn more about stuff like this. This is fascinating, right? Because the fruitless fig tree is a common Old Testament symbol that represents the true nature of God's people. And every time it is used, it describes God's pronouncement of judgment upon Israel for their false worship. Okay? It's so common, in fact, it's used by Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, Micah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Nahum, and you could even argue Ezekiel. At least 14 times in the Old Testament, it refers to God's pronouncement of judgment upon the false worship of Israel. And this fig tree represents Israel, who despite their appearance and their religious activity, which is symbolized in the leaves, it fails to produce the fruit, and it's judged by the very Messiah that it supposedly longed for. Now, I won't give you this list of passages, though I have them available. If you want them, I can give them to you after the service. But let me just mention two, okay? One such passage is Joel chapter 1, verses 15, or 11 through 15. It says, Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. It says, Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, wail, O ministers of the altar, clearly tying this imagery of the fig tree to worship. Right? Go in and pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast and call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord, Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Speaks of judgment upon their false worship. Or in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, 
No figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them has passed away from them. Here you've got this image of God coming to gather His people together and there's no fruit. There's nothing there. They're withered. They're dried up. It's a biblical... In both of these passages, God describes the ineffectual worship of Israel as this fruitless fig tree. Okay? It's a biblical image of God's judgment on false worship. In cursing the fig tree, Jesus illustrates what he's going to do in the temple in just a few verses later. Their worship, which on the outside appears to be healthy, appears to be vibrant, is actually going to be judged. It is detestable to the Lord. And that's why Mark brackets Jesus' um, Jesus action in the temple in between the story of the fig tree, right? You've got verses 12 through 14 up here. You've got 15 through 19, Jesus in the temple. And then 20 and 21 go back to the fig tree, right? This is a, a technique that Mark uses over and over again. It's called a sandwich technique. He's trying to use both of these stories to influence one another. He wants us to see that they're connected. Right? And so what he's doing is saying, in Jesus cursing the fig tree, this is an illustration of the fact that Jesus is cursing the temple. He's not cleansing the temple. He's cursing the temple. And we also have to remember that this is not the first time that Jesus has condemned their false worship. If you go back to Mark chapter 7, verses 6 through 7, he said of the religious leaders, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, for it is written... This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They have turned from God to a form of religion, a list of rules and rituals, honoring Him in name only, but their hearts are actually hard towards Him. They don't love Him. They don't want Him. They are but a fruitless fig tree, bearing leaves, but producing no fruit. And so Jesus curses their worship. He goes into the temple. He drives out the sellers and the buyers. He overturns the money-changing tables. You know, he, he doesn't allow anyone to carry anything. He is, in effect, stopping their worship. Okay? Because if they can't exchange money, and they can't buy animals, and they can't carry their offering to the altar, then their worship and function has ceased. They don't have anything. He's symbolizing its end. You see, God is not going to allow them to continue to deceive themselves into thinking that they are worshiping the Lord. He's going to bring it to an end. In cursing this fig tree, Jesus makes it clear that he is cursing the false worship of God's people. Now, before we go on, we need to look at the end of the bracket. In verses 20 and 21, it says that as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now, this withering fig tree is a sign of Jesus' curse of Israel's false worship, and that it's come to the end. The season has changed. Now, I think that there's something significant to... to uh, Mark's statement that it was not the season for figs. And it, I, I think that it goes beyond this idea that it's, it's not harvest time yet. I think that he's actually saying, no, this time is over. It's done. Okay? This, this fig tree's come to an end. You see, God's dwelling place with man has changed over the course of history. It's, each one has had its own season. 
I mean, again, back, back in Genesis chapter 1, and you've got 1 and 2, and you've got Adam and Eve in the garden. They're dwelling with the Lord. But what happened? They rejected God. They wanted to be like God. They, they disobeyed Him. They sinned against Him. And so as a result, they were cast out of the garden, away from His presence, separated from Him, God's dwelling place. They're not with Him anymore. They placed themselves under death and under His judgment. But then later, God establishes the tabernacle, this movable, elaborate tent that would go with the people. The Ark of the Covenant was kept there. This was the worship spot. This is where they offered their sacrifices. This is where God's presence dwelt. And when God would lead them on, the tabernacle would go, and they would follow behind. And when God would stop, the tabernacle would stop, would be set up, and they would be there. It was meant to represent that God was present with His people. But still... They rejected Him. Still, they rebelled against Him. Still, they tried to live without Him. And so, that was replaced. This time, by a temple. By an elaborate structure. Which very presence just kind of displayed God's holiness. His worth. His magnificence. This was a glorious temple. Surely now... They are going to worship the Lord rightly. Wrong. They don't. They still reject Him. They still go after other gods. And so Solomon, who built that first temple, you know, like that temple was destroyed. And then later, after the exile, Zerubbabel built a second temple. That one was destroyed. And now we're on the third. The one in Jesus' time was the one that Herod built. They're on the third. And it is about to be destroyed. Each one of them had their season. None of them were permanent, but they were meant to point to something greater. And now that time is at hand. The kingdom of God is near because the king is here. Jesus came preaching. The kingdom of God is at hand, so repent and believe the gospel. This is supported by Mark chapter 12, verse 2, that this season has come. Jesus is now the true temple. And all who follow Him will be given His Spirit to dwell in them so that they now become together as a corporate entity the very temple of God. And though Jesus, and through Jesus, God's dwelling place is in man. It's not a building. It's not in empty religious practices. And as you go, you see that Jesus is going to condemn the religious leaders. He's then going to to prophesy, predict the, the coming destruction of the temple in chapter 13. And then in chapter 14, that very veil that in the temple that separated the people from the Holy of Holies, from the presence of the Lord, Jesus rips it in two in His death. There is now no separation. That time has come. It is over. Now, God's dwelling place is with man in Jesus Christ. He is the true temple. Worship is necessarily wraps around Him. He is the way to God. And all those other things were just pointers to our need of Him. And this is shocking. And no one gets it. Peter is surprised. He's astonished that the tree that Jesus cursed has withered. But it's probably due to the fact that this is the first miracle that Jesus has performed that actually was destructive rather than constructive. Did you ever think about that? 
Right? Every other time Jesus heals, Jesus restores, Jesus frees, Jesus delivers, doing all that. This last and final miracle that Jesus performed is a curse. The tree withers. You know, I think the biggest reason that we don't like this passage, it's not because, you know, Jesus wasn't a tree hugger. It wasn't the fact that Jesus was angry. We don't like knowing that Jesus gets righteously angry about false worship. We don't like knowing that God is going to pour his wrath out on hypocrites. We don't like the fact that God is going to judge half-hearted, blasphemous worship. Because, let's be honest with ourselves, if we really look, if I really examine my soul, I know that I'm the same way. I know that my worship is half-hearted. That I am not fully devoted to the Lord. I know that I'm a hypocrite. And I don't want to see that. Friends, there is a clear line between the holiness of God and the reality of our sin. The temple was a picture of that. But that temple, that picture, has become so marred by the sinfulness of man that he will not let it stand. It will not continue. God will destroy it. He's not going to allow them to pretend to appear spiritual when in reality they love and worship other things. And He's going to do that with each of us. You're not fooling anybody. Jesus is displaying God's hatred and judgment of false worship. But here's the thing, guys. Here's the thing. Praise God that He not only condemns false worship, but Jesus died to purify it. you got to get this. you got to get this. If you don't get this, you're going to walk away hating yourself and hating God and trying to live a life that you can't live. But if you get this, then there's hope. Jesus died to purify our worship. He becomes the temple so that in Him we can become the temple of God. Through faith in Christ, His Spirit dwells in us and He changes us. He gives us new desires, new affections. It leads us to holiness, to fruitfulness, to right worship. And where time and time again man fails to come to God as he should, God in His kindness comes to man. Praise God that Jesus doesn't allow us to continue to deceive ourselves in false worship. But instead, He comes to change its very nature. But we have to recognize that we need it. So that's the first, and as usual, my longest point. Right? They're going to get shorter, much shorter. Right? Second, this passage teaches about the point of true worship. Unfortunately, verses 15 through 19 have been poorly subtitled. Okay, Jesus is not cleansing the temple. Jesus is cursing the temple. Right? His goal is not to restore or to reform the temple to its original glory and right worship. No, He is predicting its end. 
You don't believe me? Flip two chapters to chapter 13. Not one stone will remain on top of the other. Okay? This is a judgment that Jesus is making. Let's read verses 15 through 17 again. And he came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house, which is significant, shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, people want to suggest that Jesus overturned the tables for one of two reasons, right? Either because there were corrupt practices taking place there, right? They were, they were greedy, they were taking money that they shouldn't have, you know, charging exorbitant fees, or that because this market took place in the, the court of the Gentiles, it didn't allow non-Jews a place to pray. And so Jesus was basically cleaning it out, trying to make space so they can come and pray, Right? But it's a lot more than that. Jesus is doing far more than attacking greed or trying to clear a spot on the outside of the temple, on the outside of the temple, so that the Gentiles could pray. He is symbolizing the overthrow of the whole thing. The Jews weren't simply greedy and neglectful of non-Jews. Jesus was also attacking their reliance upon the temple as a national symbol to promote ethnocentrism, which basically means racism. They thought they were better because they had the temple. Right? He is condemning the religious leaders because of their lust for power and control, their fear of man and their forgetfulness of God's will and His true intentions for worship. He was denouncing their greed and their exploitation of the poor and marginalized. Jesus was rebuking their laziness and their lust for comfort and ease. You know why that market is there? It's because people didn't want to drag their lambs up to Jerusalem to offer them a sacrifice. That's why they're there. Okay? Because here's the deal. Hey, even if you're coming from Jericho, we saw that that's a, there's a 3,500-foot climb up a mountain, right? Even if you live that close, I don't want to drag this dumb little lamb up the hill. What happens if I lose it? What happens if it becomes lame, right? Then I can't offer it because it's not unblemished. What if somebody robs me along the way? You know, something could happen. So why don't I just sell this thing now and take the money with me up to Jerusalem and then I can buy it up there? Seems reasonable enough, right? Except it denies the very practice. There's meaning in the methodology, right? That they were to give that which the Lord had given them. It was to be a sacrifice, not just of a lamb on an altar, but it was to be a sacrifice of what it took me to raise that thing up and what it took me to carry that thing along the way and what it took, like the whole process. But they were making it easy. They were making it simple. They were making it convenient. Spend a little bit more money on the process, but it's a whole lot easier. That has some major implications for us when we think about what worship is and what we prefer. He attacks their outward acts of worship without inward change and their false sense of security because they have performed their religious duties. So basically, Jesus is condemning the whole thing. 
Okay? No matter what efforts one can perform, nothing can reconcile him to God. So don't fool yourself into thinking that you can make yourself right before God. It cannot happen. Jesus isn't just cursing greed and partiality. He's a cursing the whole thing. But in the process of cursing their false worship, Jesus does teach us about worship that is pleasing to the Lord. Praise God for this. We can see it there in verse 17. It tells us a lot about worship. Okay? It says, And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations? Who house? Whose house? Jesus' house. Not just God's. Right? Because Jesus is God. But you have made it a den of robbers. <clears throat> First of all, you want to advance the slide one more? Cool. Uh, first of all, we see that true worship requires faithful biblical teaching. Okay? Jesus actually counters their misconception of worship by accurately teaching from Scripture. Now, this seems obvious enough, but I'm amazed by how lacking scriptural teaching really is in most churches today. Right? We kind of like use it as a touch point to then talk about whatever we want. And we don't really deal with it. And we don't really counter certain issues with the truth of God's Word. But Jesus teaches us that this is huge. God wants us to know Him and to worship Him according to His will and according to His design. And we can't know that if His Word goes missing or is mistaken or is misapplied to our supposed worship services. If we get it wrong, we're not worshiping the Lord. And so we need to learn from Christ's example. True worship requires faithful biblical teaching. Second, true worship is dependent in prayer. Right? Prayer is not where we come to God and we give Him this laundry list of the things that we want Him to do for us. Okay? This is, we don't pray in order to bend His will to ours. We, no, we go and we pray in order to grow in our dependence upon Him in recognition of who He is and saying, I need you. God, I'm trusting in you. God, I'm looking to you. Whether you do this for me or not, I am here for you. This is, prayer is a display of our reliance upon, our recognition and our trust in who He is. That He is able to do what we cannot so is your worship characterized by crying out in dependence to God? Or are you relying upon yourself and only looking to Him to give you things that you want? Third, Jesus teaches us that true worship is focused on missions. He quotes from Isaiah 56, verse 7, a chapter that is devoted to the salvation of foreigners or Gentiles. It says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. True worship is outward. It is concerned for the lost, both near and both far. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nation. They were supposed to lead foreigners to God. But instead they focused on themselves. And the temple which was meant to be a beacon to the Gentiles, end up coming something that they used to promote their national pride and thinking that I'm better than you and you can't come here because you're not one of us. <laughs> Denying the very purpose 
that God instituted that temple. So when you worship, do you consider others around you? When you worship, do you think about those that don't know Jesus? Are you concerned about them? Do you pray for them? Do you, do you want them to come to know Christ? Or is this about you? What you can get out of it? How you feel? We need to be concerned about this. Right? This is why we're doing the 1002 prayer time. This is why if you come here at 925 on Sunday mornings, we get together and we pray for the service. We pray for the lost. We pray for people around us. This is why we have the missional prayer gatherings on Thursday nights at 7 p.m. at the Espresso Royale at 6th and Daniel. This is why we go on mission trips. This is why we support missionaries. This is why our community groups and our life transformation groups are are concerned about sharing the gospel with others. You choose to. We pray for them. Let's go out and engage with them. That's what we want to do. We want to be about that. We want to be about missions because true worship is focused on missions. The question is, are you? Fourth, true worship is concerned for the good of others. And fifth, true worship is centered on the glory of God. Both of these can be seen in what Jesus says next. Not only should the temple be a house of prayer for all the nations, but Jesus actually rebukes Israel for turning the temple into a den of robbers. This quote actually comes from Jeremiah 7. Do yourself a favor, go home and read Jeremiah 7. I'm only going to read verses 4 through 11. It says, Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. For you, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place and in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in my house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all of these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes. That's powerful. That's condemning. This is a chiding rebuke because the people both fail to see each other's good, right? They're they're not just. They're oppressing the sojourner, the orphan, the widow. They're shedding innocent blood. They're lying. They're stealing. They're committing murder. They're committing adultery. And they went after false gods. That They loved and served and worshipped other things more than they worshipped God. And by continuing to worship God in the temple, by standing there on Sunday and saying, we're delivered, but then going back to them, they actually made the temple into a haven of robbers. Those who robbed their fellow men of justice and those who robbed God of worship. That's what it means. 
Not that people were greedy. True worship is concern for the good of others. Again, how often do you seek ways to do good to others around you? Do you show concern and care for the sojourner, for the fatherless, for the widow? Are you loving others and seeking their good? Or do you come here and it's all about you? True worship is centered on the glory of God. I mean, how much of what you do is focused on bringing glory and honor to the Lord? Really? I mean, I'm not talking lip service here, but in reality, how much of your life do you spend focus on bringing glory to the Lord? Or do you compartmentalize your life and say, yeah, on Sunday, okay, that's my devotion to the Lord. I'm going to come here, I'm going to sing songs, I'm going to pray, I'm going to listen to a long-winded sermon that never ends, and then I'm going to go, and on, on Monday, it's, it's about my job, or it's about school, and then on Tuesday, it's about my family, or about my kids, and on Wednesday, it's about my significant other, whoever that other is, on Thursday, you know, it's really, it's about my comfort, my ease, or my stomach because I'm hungry, or on Friday, it's because of my possessions, and Saturday, Saturday's devoted to sports, right? It's really easy to compartmentalize your life, or think that you can compartmentalize your life. So who do you worship? What do you love? What do you put first in your life? What do you, when, if you were asked the question, you know, what can you not live without? How would you answer that? Like, you know, I'd be fine as long as I have this. Or if this, I, I lose this thing, I don't know how I would go on. Those are idols that you're worshiping. You might not bow to Baal, but you are worshiping those idols. And even when you're here right now, the question is ultimately, is this about God or is it about you? Really? When we look at this list, I think that we can see that there is much of what we consider to be priorities for right and fruitful worship that are not there. And a lot of what's on there doesn't even cross our minds. Am I right? Now, I'm not saying that excellent music is bad or that having experiences is bad. Don't hear me say that. I'm not saying that. But perhaps our priorities that we judge to use worship are not Christ's priorities for right worship. And if that's the case, then something has to change. And it's not Jesus. So, what needs to be changed in your thinking about worship? What do we need to do differently? You need to think about these questions. Because here's the deal. You are a worshiper, and you will automatically worship something. You are going to worship something. We were created for worship. You will worship. You worship. What do you worship? And this leads to the third point. What will you worship? In reaction to Jesus' confrontation of their false worship, it says in verses 18 and 19, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Now the crowd is baffled, but unresponsive to Jesus and what he has just done. Okay, Yes, they are astonished, 
but they're not amazed into doing anything differently. Yes, they are surprised and they are shocked, but they don't respond. Nothing changes. The religious leaders, they heard what Jesus had, had, had said and what he'd done, but they didn't do anything to change either. In fact, they saw Jesus as a threat. They were afraid of Jesus and what he was expecting to happen. Right? And so they would lose their power. They would lose control. They would lose their traditions if the crowd began to follow his teaching. So they had to do something about it. They feared him. They hardened their hearts against him. And they sought to kill him. That was their response. In order to protect their worship, they sought to crucify Jesus. They sought a way to destroy him. And and here's the irony. The means that they used to kill Jesus in order to protect their worship is actually the means by which God would use to condemn their worship. Their worship would crucify Jesus. But Jesus' crucifixion would condemn their worship. The biggest mistake that you and I can make today is to walk out of here and do nothing differently to be just like the crowd or worse yet to be just like these religious leaders who nailed Jesus to the cross it's crazy to think about you know our worship nails Jesus to the cross and so we're left with two options do nothing Continue on with status quo. Continue to pursue what you like, what you're interested in, rather than making Christ's priorities your priorities. Or admit that we are false worshipers and that our half-hearted acts of adoration actually nailed Jesus to a tree. Let's turn away from our reliance on our efforts. Let's turn away from our personal preferences. Let's turn away from our own intellect. Let's turn away from our own experiences. And let's follow the pattern of Him who died to purify our worship, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, so that we might, so that He might judge our worship by His own blood and find it pleasing to the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we we just need to begin by confessing, God, that we do not worship you rightly. That so often we have gone after wrong desires. They might not be bad, they might not be uh, malicious in their motives, but we, we ignore what you have said to seek out our own ways and our own traditions and our own preferences. God, I pray that that you would change our hearts, that Christ's priorities would be our priorities, that we would see just how much we need cleansing. We need reform. We, we do not want to, at the end of the day, stand before Jesus and have Him curse our worship. And God, we need Him to come and to purify it for us. And so God, we pray that you do that. I thank you that Christ died so that we're not left to ourselves and seeking after you, but that you have made a way for us through him. God, I pray that we would respond by following him. Help us to see how much you love us in him, and help us to respond by loving you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.